0: Welcome. I'm Warner Deschillette, and this is a Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to a Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Gary Ruscha on February 8, 2021. Gary is a social and economic development worker now living in Ukraine. Combining a PhD in agricultural science with an MBA in management, he managed projects in Central America, Africa, Southeast Asia, and the ex-Soviet Union. Since 1975, his work and profession has been in agricultural and rural development. During the past 20 years, Gary used the concept of Baha'i consultation in his work and teams. His passion is to correlate Baha'i social principles with current realities in the world and to work for a sustainable future in a united world. He lives on a small farm and runs a residential vacation school along with his wife called the Land of Virtues for groups of children, youth, and adults striving to build a culture based on universal spiritual principles. Gary makes reference to a Baha'i-inspired organization called EBBF, which is an organization aspiring ethical people building the future. I started the interview by asking Gary where he grew up and what was religious life like growing up.
1: Well, I was born in California during the Korean War when my father was a, a World War II pilot. And actually, right after I was born outside of San Francisco, I, we were sent to Japan because my father was fighting in the Korean War at that time, and we were based in Japan. So my first two or three years was in Japan. And and after that, actually, we went to Hawaii, the Air Force base at Hawaii, and that was before Hawaii was actually a state. So the first six years of my life, I lived outside of the United States, of course, then back to California and the Washington, D.C. area. But... Essentially, as far as my religious upbringing, my father was not very religious. I would say he was a spiritual man, and he was in favor of, of course, having a good feeling about life and religion, but he didn't really like to talk. In fact, he didn't like to talk about anything. He never talked about, for example, his activities in the war. My mother also born in California to Swedish immigrants, And, and Swedish immigrants are quite different than, let's say, uh, Ukrainians or Southern Europeans or or Americans. They're they're quite internal. Some people think of them as kind of cold. But anyway, we always attended church as part of the family routine for the first 17 years of my life. We were Episcopalians. Of course, I was always attending church classes for children and youth, and I even became an altar boy, assisting the priest uh, with communion. That was really the first activities of my life until the 60s, the end of the 60s, when there was a lot of activism in the United States, and I was very much a part of that. I would describe myself as a deep introvert. Growing up, I didn't talk much, but I observed almost everything around me. I read a lot of books. I loved sports. But then in the 60s, of course, when all this activism started, I was attracted to social action. I was attracted to the difficulties in the world, so I was really involved in anything from even the black panthers at times the women's movement or feminism in that time the american or native american movement anti-vietnam war of course even chicano or mexican-american activism so i was involved in social change up through let's say the first year of university at which time i decided the heck with that i want to get out and understand life I, i don't really understand life all these things are happening And so I quit the university, bought myself a motorcycle, and I was just about ready to start a travel across the North American uh, to learn about life and people and things. And guess what? I ran across uh, a person of the Baha'i faith.
0: What was that first interaction like?
1: First part of the interaction was the description was what is Baha'i? And he talked to me about the Baha'i faith. It's a world religion. We basically believe that all religions come from the same god and yet each religion has a certain social, let's say, perspective for the particular age in which it, it was taught. So even though as Baha'is, we believe in a lot of Christianity and, and other types of things, we had a certain, let's say, orientation, he explained, on social issues. And so, of course, my ears perked up on that, but I more or less said, okay, fine. And, and he said, I'll give you a call. And I said, okay, give me a call. And so I was just about to another week later take off on my trip around the United States on a motorcycle, and he did call me up and invited me to the home of Ruhi and John Huddleston in the northern Virginia area. John Huddleston was a senior expert at the International Monetary Fund. He and Ruhi, even though we probably didn't spend that many years together knowing each other, they... Would definitely impacted me. Because the first thing I did was I went to their house, which wasn't too far away from where I lived. And we went to a meeting, I think it was the anniversary of the Bob who's the precursor to the founder of the Baha'i Faith, Baha'u'llah. And during this meeting, Ruhi Huddleston gave a talk about the Bob, the life of the Bob, what was happening in Iran, in the kind of teachings that the Bob had. And And so I I listened very carefully to that. After the meeting, Ruhi came up to me and said, you know, you were really paying attention to me, maybe kind of suggesting that other people were not. It was true, I was. But as time went on, John Huddleston, his work with the IMF, and just his style of talking and writing, eventually he's an author of a number of Baha'i books, he impacted me. In fact, I would have to say he set me off in a direction that From that day in 1970 until now, basically a straight line. And so one of the things that was happening during those days was a lot of the Baha'is were being encouraged to go international pioneering. And I thought to myself, hmm, okay, fine.
0: What is pioneering, Gary?
1: A lot of people think it may be something like being a missionary, but no, it's not a missionary. And and as I talk a little bit more later, maybe about what I've done in the world uh, since that time, Basically, it is social action on one hand. We are socially active. We want to work for the improvement of the world. And we go there and and we work like like other people. We're involved with the society. But at the same time, of course, we help to meet uh, the Baha'i communities. We help to talk to people about the faith and explain to people in different countries where we're traveling and where we meet people, explain to them a little bit why the Baha'i faith is... Perhaps a little bit different from, say, Christianity or maybe Islam or maybe Buddhism, because I've lived in different countries with different religions. And in the end of the day, of course, I would always say, listen, let's understand that to me and to my concept of religion, all these religions really are coming from the same God and the real differences between them are really the differences related to the social circumstances and requirements of the age in which we live. And so Baha'i is a worldwide religion in the current world today. I mean, when we look at things like the coronavirus or climate change that's going on, these are things that have nothing to do with national boundaries. These are things that can only be solved in the context of a world society, which is exactly what the founder of the Baha'i Faith Baha'u'llah told us back in the middle of the 19th century. So we, as Baha'is, have always expected that the development of a world civilization is something that's very much a part of our
0: faith. Gary, you've been in the field of agriculture and rural development since 1975. Can you tell us about this work? The first place
1: I ended up was in Haiti. From Haiti, I think I can add another 70 countries before I get to Ukraine. Basically, I started working initially for American universities. A lot of American universities have international programs. And so I was involved with the Virginia Polytechnic Institute International Program in Haiti. And then from Haiti, I was actually, I was asked to move to West Africa. And I didn't know, should I go to West Africa? Should I stay to Haiti? And I met a hand of the cause there, Ina Kalinga, who's African.
0: What is a hand of the cause?
1: This is a Baha'i that's recognized in the Baha'i faith as someone who helps to guide the community in terms of the development of the community and the spirit and the actions within the community. So these were all related to, let's say, the international development of the Baha'i faith. We looked at these uh, hands of the cause, and I met about nine of them during my life. We look at them as people who have a great deal of knowledge that can help us to understand about how to approach the way we live and the activities that we're undertaking. Hand of the cause, Inokolinga, who came from Uganda, but he was traveling around the world then as a hand of the cause, he said to me, well, you know, if if I were to suggest anything, uh, don't stay in Haiti, go to Africa. And so indeed, Mm -hmm. that's exactly what I did. And I ended up in West Africa. And from there, I started in different programs, ended up working in probably 17 different countries in West Africa, Eventually, I came back a little bit to the United States because we had some health problems. I went back to Sri Lanka. From Sri Lanka, I ended up moving to the Russian Federation. And so uh, little by little, you know, moving around the world with the work that I did with development agencies and, of course, working in the development of the Baha'i communities, I didn't really have a plan. I didn't sit down and say, okay, I'm going to do it here and then I'm going to do that. It was like every time uh, something came up, It was like a door that opened for me. I said, oh, this seems to be the right thing, and I just went ahead and did it. Agricultural development is something that is very much promoted by the founder of the Bahá'í Faith, Baha'u'llah as a very important activity for humanity. And really, if we look at today's situation in the world, this is, again, something that demonstrates the fact that these teachings from the middle of the 19th century are even perfectly relevant today in the early part of the 21st century agricultural development what does it mean really it means working with rural communities it's not just a matter of growing food it's also about how to store the food the kinds of diets that are involved in different ways in which ones that can help the communities to develop and become not just agriculture but you know communities that have uh, possibilities to develop better facilities for water better facilities for sanitary purposes and that sort of thing so this was always a part of of the activities in rural development and agriculture that i was engaged in all around the world starting in haiti and carrying on to africa and, and then on to other
0: countries and is that the work that eventually brought you to the ukraine
1: yes exactly i mean first of all let me say we don't say the ukraine i'll tell you why i say that because ukrainians will say come on, we're we're not part of Russia. Actually, it's correct in English, but it's incorrect to say the Ukraine in Russian or Ukrainian because that implies that Ukraine is a state of Russia instead of a separate country. I arrived in Ukraine through Russia, Eli, better start there, because I was hired to work on the first World Bank project in Russia during a time when the collective farms of the Soviet Union were being privatized, essentially The farms that had been brought together during the Stalin era and all of the local, let's say, private individual farmers were forced to collectivize and work together on one large collective farm. When the Soviet Union broke up, these collective farms were then divided and returned basically to the workers on the collective farm. This was the activities in Russia, and of course I became involved with the Baha'i community in Russia for a number of years. I was on the local assembly of Moscow. The local assembly is kind of a local administrative body that helps the community develop programs for children and youth and for study circles and that sort of thing. From a business point of view, going to Russia, that was when agriculture started to be more not just growing food, at least in the work that I was doing, but also included, let's say, the business aspects of developing agriculture in these countries. So I did an MBA program in the Netherlands and became more of kind of an agribusiness specialist working in the Soviet Union, and I became a CEO of a Dutch company operating in the ex-Soviet Union where I was moving all around Central Asia, Russia, Ukraine, every other place. I was always involved in the development cause, but because, again, the people who were called pioneers like myself, we went around the world. We were not missionaries. We worked. I don't know how it happened, but almost every time I was able to get into jobs that were quite substantive and allowed me to do some good programs in agriculture development in different countries around the world. I think I should mention here, getting back to the MBA, that I joined in the beginning of the 90s before the breakup of the Soviet Union was about 1991. And about that time, I was invited to go there. And so I heard about this organization called EBBF, which is a Baha'i-inspired business organization. And I said, well, you know, even though I was scientifically based and now I want to be more on the business side, I better get some more input on the business side. And so I joined EBBF. This was actually a very good thing. I've been a member of the EBBF for about 20, 25 years. I was on the research committee. I've I've written some publications for the EBBF. One of the courses at the Wilmette Institute is a a joint course between EBBF and the Wilmette Institute. And so I started working in business. But business, again, is something not just for me personally. I think when we talk about development, I have a very thin line in my life between the activities of development in the Baha'i community and the activities of development in society. I've almost seen no difference between them. They seem they're practically one and the same in, in my, let's say, internal thinking. After a few years in Russia, from about 1991 until 2003, then I moved to Ukraine. I left my Dutch company that was uh, I was working for in Moscow and I was hired as a senior operations officer with the World Bank Group. I started managing projects in Ukraine for about 10, 15 years now. Not only Ukraine, but about 50% of my time, they sent me traveling around the world to different countries from the Philippines to South Asia to Africa to Central America. So that brought me to Ukraine. And as these activities brought me to the different countries where I had lived during my, let's say, activities since leaving the United States, I decided it was good enough. I mean, I was tired of moving around (laughs) (laughs) That was enough traveling. So really, after I finished up with the World Bank Group, I started thinking to myself, well, you know, what am I going to do now? And so I I bought myself a small farm in Ukraine, thinking that I would develop it. And ever since that time, uh, I've been uh, living on this small farm, continued to work here in Ukraine. So it's, it's going to be 18 years here, which is kind of surprising to me that time moves so quickly.
0: You created an institution called Land of Virtues. Can you tell us what that is, what its mission is, and I guess what inspired you to create it?
1: The Land of Virtues is a Baha'i-inspired project. It is not a direct activity of the Baha'i community, but it is 100% Baha'i-inspired because my wife and I are Baha'is. They are children and youth activities that we carry on at the farm where we live. Let me back up a little bit because it, it gives a better history, I think. When I lived in Sri Lanka, I lived in Sri Lanka for five years. I was involved with the establishment of a kind of a school like the Land of Virtues. We called it there the Baha'i Teaching Institute. It was part of the National Assembly of Sri Lanka. And it included programs for children and youth, and as well as the establishment of activities for, uh, let's say, uh, artisanal-type activities, so useful skills for rural inhabitants. And that activity was something that I spent a lot of time and and energy on when I was in Sri Lanka for five years, and it continues until today, thank God. So it's always been in my desire to be able to do these kinds of programs. When I moved to Ukraine, well, even in Russia, let me just back up a little bit to Russia because in Russia there was a project called the Virtues Project, was a project that we had in Russia, basically. It's a project that was established by a number of Baha'is, the Dekavalin, Dan Popov, and others. It's a beautiful book that helps teachers and parents to work with children in developing those virtues or spiritual capacities, which will allow them to lead good lives, fruitful lives, and lives that will fulfill their spiritual purpose for living, you know. Again, getting back to when we talk about religion, when we really talk about these virtues or these spiritual qualities, they're almost identical from religion to religion. But these materials that were developed by Linda Kavlin and Don Popov and and others, they were absolutely wonderful. And at the same time, I wanted to start something in Russia, but I didn't do it before I left. But I did have interactions with two teachers in Russia. One was Alexander Lopatin, another called Marina Skripsova who had um, decided also to use their teaching, let's say, experiences to write a series of books for children and youth to, again, teach them the basic spiritual values and virtues that we all need to live and be successful in our lives and in our families. So anyway, the Virtues Project in Ukraine was kind of coming out of this background, and, and I had a little bit more time because I was moving towards retirement the World Bank retires people relatively young at that point in time. And so uh, after I was retired, I wanted to make sure I had a good project going. And so I did start this project, which basically amounts to for dormitory facilities, uh, kitchens, a uh, schoolhouse, and all of that sort of stuff. It's a Baha'i-inspired project because this is something that the Baha'i community around the world puts like at the forefront of priorities in our activities, is working with children, and particularly children and youth, We have lots of activities for adults also, but I mean, we really believe that, and I personally really believe, that the world is going to be impacted, not so much on my generation, but the younger people in the world. I mean, maybe you've heard of someone by the name of Greta Thunberg, yeah? Greta Thunberg is a young girl, I think she was 14 or 15, and she started asking questions about climate change, saying that climate change is something that's leading towards a catastrophe in the world, And she actually began to study some things about it and standing out in front of the parliament in her country and eventually, actually, other children saw her and started to agree with her and started to participate with her and turned into an activist movement throughout Europe and it's moved, I think, all over the world recently against climate change and the issues that are impacting our societies now. So I really feel that children are the future. I mean, even here in ex-Soviet Union, I always joke, my wife says I'm terrible when it comes to joking, but I always joke that older people are fixed in their mentalities. They have kind of a fixed structure. And so those that came out of the Soviet era and the Soviet bloc and the Soviet mentality are quite a bit old-fashioned in the way they see things. But young people are really quite different. They see these things in the world today. When we work on the Virtues Project particularly, we wanted to be able to work with children and to inspire them first to live a virtuous life, a good life, a happy life, a successful life, a successful marriage, but also they should very much be involved in understanding that there are existential threats facing the world, and it is up to them really, even more so than their parents, to really stand up and start doing things. We built facilities on the farm and actually the project really grew primarily due to the teaching abilities of my wife. She is a Ukrainian teacher, she taught in rural schools for the 20 years or so before I met her. She's an excellent teacher and we basically offered classes to children who came to live with us. We had residential facilities and usually for about 30 children, could be 25 to 35, and they they would stay with us for two weeks and sometimes more, and during a two-week period, they would get classes on virtues you know, every day, but, but not only. There would be other activities, social activities. And also, it was kind of a self-help activity on the school so that not only did they go to class and talk about the virtues that impacted their lives, but they were expected to work together in a small community on the farm and help each other and take care of each other, and take care of their rooms and help with the kitchen, help with the farm, help with the animals and get involved with things. So it was building a community and teaching them about the virtues and the activities, but helping them to not only learn about them intellectually, but also to learn how to practice them. And there's lots of issues with children, lots that my wife is really good working uh, with these children and helping them. So we always had issues, uh, had to deal with, and we dealt with them in ways that hopefully allowed them to become better balanced in terms of their life and and in terms of their future. We were really successful, and and we are successful. Well, this year was a bad year because of the coronavirus. We couldn't really invite the kids to our school, but usually we had about 150 kids every summer uh, living with us at uh, two weeks at a time groups of say 30 or so and the parents were really supportive of it very supportive of it but let me just say that this was not and this is a rather large distinction this was not like the Baha'i communities' children's classes and, and junior youth classes of course we used Baha'i materials and we were Baha'is and it was Baha'i inspired but the reason why for that had to do with, let's say, the culture in Ukraine and the culture in rural areas. If we invited children to come to participate in the Virtues Project here in Good in our village, many of the parents would want to know, well, what is it about? And, of course, we would explain to them what virtues are and why it's good and, and why these sorts of things are good for us and for the community and for their children and for their future. Yeah, but at the same time, most of the parents did not like the idea that it would be religious training. Taking place, you know, at the school, they all knew that we were Baha'i. We didn't hide that. And actually, in the beginning, we thought that this might be a problem that people would hear that we're Baha'i. What is that strange religion? But in fact, it turns out that just because we were quite open and we didn't push religion on anybody, we were quite well accepted in the community over time. If we had done it. Otherwise, we probably would not have been accepted in the community, quite frankly, because that's the way rural communities are. There's a lot of talking and and backbiting that goes on in most rural communities. But anyway, over time, the parents saw that they could trust us as Baha'is, teaching their children in virtues, and we would explain to them that, yes, we are Baha'i, but yes, these virtues are the same for Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, or whatever. And they liked this, and they saw the impact of this teaching on the children, How it improved their lives, how they went home, sometimes different than they were when they went there, how they wanted to go back, and how they made friendships and everything else. So, actually, it's a wonderful activity. There are similar type activities that we know about here in Europe from other Baha'i activities, Baha'i inspired activities, that really play a big role, I think, in the development of communities in Europe. And, of course, in the United States, we have these kinds of schools also. So, we like this and we love it and we'd like to see this develop. I would say very successful.
0: Gary, do you create your own materials for the classes at Land of Virtues?
1: First answer is yes. The, there's the Virtues Project, there's the materials that we got from the Canadian Baha'is who did the Virtues Project. We have, of course, the Ruhi materials that are being used out. Ruhi is a special series of courses that the Baha'i communities around the world are utilizing. We had the materials that came from the two Russian Baha'i teachers who were teaching these virtues. And, of course, we had our own experiences. I do teach. I have taught at universities, but my wife is really the main teacher, you know, for this particular activity. But we all know that teaching is not something where it's kind of rote learning, you know. It's not something that we can just say, okay, here's the book. Let's follow through the book through A, B, C, D, E, F, G. That doesn't always go well. So actually, you know, we took these materials and we adapted them for the groups of children and the needs of the particular moment. And this is very important, and I think it's a it's a very normal teaching activity of any teacher. They would have a program every time they taught classes. So my wife was very good at using these materials and creating programs for the children. And I have to say, we're very successful. We feel that we have the wonderful programs and that can be used to really make an impact on the life of the people who come and spend time with us at our farm on the Land of Virtues. It's just been very enlightening for us and something that brings us a great deal of happiness. (laughs) My my wife, uh, who is Ukrainian actually, she grew up in the farm next to the farm that we live on now. When I said, okay, let's start this project, she said, are you crazy? No one's going to come. She didn't believe that the parents would really be sending their kids to such an activity. Well, thank God, she was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And she knows that she was wrong. But what I've seen over the 10 years is that how inspiring it has been to her to work with these children and to talk to them and to have them talk to her in ways in which, as a Ukrainian teacher in these schools, this kind of conversation between the children and the teacher was not so common. She was a teacher in the Ukrainian school system, and she moved from one school to the other. So when she moved to the school close to where we live, They assigned her, somehow or another, they kind of segregate the kids into different groups, the good group and the medium group and the bad group. And she was assigned the bad group that everybody had trouble with. And so she went and she had these kids and they were difficult and she would come home crying. I would say, listen, these are just children and and probably, you know, they just need attention and they need to be listened to. And so actually, she said, okay, and she kept going back and started working with these kids and utilizing you know, this approach with teaching was a little bit different from, let's say, teaching them to go through certain exercises and finish them. But in the end of the day, the children began to react to her and they began to behave like they were expected to behave. And so the principal of the school often went around to the different classes and checked on the teachers. And she would sometimes go to my wife's class and look at what she was doing. And she would see that the kids were more or less behaving well and and interested. And so she asked my wife, what's going on here? You know, how did this happen? So my wife explained, not only is it necessary to to listen to children, but also to deal with the virtues and the qualities that they need to be uh, successful in what they're doing. The children reacted to that. And so the principal was quite impressed by that. And in fact, when the next part of the academic year started after the winter, season she asked my wife to speak to the school in general and to describe how she was able to work with these children in a way that actually changed them into children who were much more amiable to the courses and the the lessons that were being given in the school because before they were just really problematic. And so the same kind of thing can be said about her work with the children at the Land of Virtues. We had lots of children who would show up who were difficult. The parents would say, I don't know, maybe we can't send you this child because this child is really difficult. And we would say, okay, let's give it a try. But more often than not, these difficult children weren't all that difficult, actually of course you would have some difficulties with them when they arrived you'd have to talk to them you'd have to sit with them and and you wouldn't get away with much with my wife she's a strong teacher but in the end of the day this was very valuable and i think it's something that every really teacher is expected most of the baha'i classes for children and youth in ukraine are rather small you know three five maybe it's sometimes more children but but not so many children And they don't seem to grow so much. And the reason for this is not because it's a Baha'i institution that's doing the teaching. I think the reason for it is simply the same reason why parents just have a certain fear, a trust, you know, that they don't have with certain institutions and activities. If they feel the children can be trusted to certain individuals, and these individuals are going to not be pushing things onto them, that the parents would not be directly involved with, then all of a sudden they kind of open up and they tell their friends and their friends tell their friends, and all of a sudden we get large numbers of children you know, coming to the school. We have to realize, I think, in the Baha'i community that there are a lot of children that the virtues training is very important for any parent of any religion. It is religion. I mean, it's, of course, not direct religion, but it's very much uh, integral to any particular of the world religions but parents sometimes are a little bit reticent to want to have their child go to somebody else and learn about religion they seem to be much more ready to send their children to these kinds of activities and then of course it's up to the children to move on from there and we always kind of open the door to that and to allow them to say okay uh, when you want to know more about this whether it's prayer whether it's what is this purpose of life what is death about and all of these issues that are quite relevant to religion you know, we're ready to talk about them, but we're not ready really to sit down and say, okay, here is the Baha'i faith and here are the Baha'i teachings for children. We don't do that because the parents don't want that, and I don't think it would be correct without the parents' permission, quite frankly, to go in that direction. But we do have, some of the Baha'i groups do come to the Land of Virtues, and, and they do have activities there, but most of the children that do come and spend time with us, through the years, are children but parents who are not uh, of any particular religion or they're from Catholic religion or Protestant
0: religions. I'm speaking with Gary Ruscha, a social and economic development worker now living in Ukraine. He lives on a small farm and runs a residential vacation school for groups of children, youth, and adults, striving to build a culture based on universal spiritual principles, in addition to his other work, including teaching at the Wilmette Institute. What other work are you doing in addition to The Land of Virtues?
1: Again, getting back to what I've done all my life, my job has always been project design. That's what I've done in my life for nearly 50 years, and project design is good. And so I am approached to work in projects in different parts of the world, and I'll tell you about a couple of them that I just recently worked on after, of course, I left the World Bank. Oftentimes, they will call me up and they will say, hey, can you do A, B, C, D, E? And I say, okay, listen, first of all, I'm tired of project management. I don't want it anymore. But on the other hand, I'm willing to work with the design of a project under certain circumstances. Here's the key to what I wanted to say. If I go back in history, you could call me a Green Revolution worker back in the 80s and 90s. We were working with communities. we were helping them to produce more food. We were better varieties and a lot of things that was for the development of the societies and the communities and the people. But we found also that this wasn't the full activities that were needed to really make social progress. And so by the time we reached, let's say, the turn of the century, 2000 and over, we became more and more integrated into activities of what we call community-led local development. So I will often say, okay, as long as the project is community that local development? I'm not going to go anywhere and tell them what to do. They should decide for themselves. I will try to figure out ways to help them to provide some education, to provide some materials and capacity so that they can come to these decisions, but I'm not going to tell them because that's not the way it works. If we want a sustainable development, we do community-led work. The European Union has this, and even the World Bank and others now are, are moving in that direction, But wasn't always that way, let's say, 30, 40 years ago. And so I've been invited to go to Iraq. I've worked for UNDP in Iraq. And Iraq, oh my God, it, I mean, it, it is such a difficult place to work in because of the war, because of ISIS, you know, that Islamic group that took over the region because of climate change, because of the, the salination of the soils that makes agriculture much more difficult the turks are which is where you find the, the source of the major rivers running through iraq the tigris and euphrates they're making dams upriver from iraq and so water's an issue so there's really a huge amount of problems in iraq and and uh, iraq used to be used to be dominated by the oil industry that's where let's say 90 7% of the economy of iraq was dominated by oil well, guess what, today nobody should be using so much oil. We want oil to remain in the ground, don't we? I mean, that's what the young people in Europe are saying. Mm -hmm. And so Iraq does not have the capacity anymore, based on oil, to be able to do everything that's needed for the population there. And so I said, okay, let's do a community-led project and work on the development of the youth, because there's a large youth population that's unemployed or barely employed in Iraq. So a lot of work has to be done to provide education to these and to provide them with good mechanisms by which they can earn a living in small and medium businesses. We call them short supply chains and local supply chains. We provide them with certain training so that they can move ahead and ways in which they can access finance for activities that were not possible before, really. I mean, actually, the whole banking system in Iraq it's going to have to move from, let's say, a total state-dominated system that was before to more of a private, cooperative-type system of finance. And this can be done, provided that the right values are implemented in the community and with the activities of the local communities. Then, in addition to that, there's climate change. And I'm sure you've heard of Al Gore's uh, Climate Reality Group. I'm part of the Climate Reality Group. Again, I guess social action going back to the 60s and 70s has always been in my blood. There's about 30,000 young activists working with the Al Gore group. But believe it me, these 30,000 young activists that are working now on climate issues, but it's not just climate. They start talking about everything, equality, racism. I mean, it's all interrelated, a lot of these things. But these are young activists, we get specialized training through Al Gore and his group. We meet together, we have groups, uh, we have consultations together, and we go out in our communities and we try to work with other young people as well as the politicians and the leaders in the society to be able to deal with some of these issues that we're facing with on an international level today. And in fact, most of the young activists, I'm not a young activist, but I certainly agree with them they say to the older people they say you people are hurting us you are not changing the way it has to be changed when 10 years 20 years 30 years from now when i'm no longer 15 16 or 17 years old i'm 30 or 40 or 50 years old the world that you are leading us into is going to be a problematic situation for the world it can be food it can be shortages are being predicted of course the climate change issues and the catastrophes that we see taking place around the world and the governments of the world the young people are saying and i also agree with them the governments are saying okay let's do it we're going to do it we've signed these agreements but in fact we see that we're still going in the wrong direction at an ever-increasing rate let's only hope that this begins to change soon because if it doesn't things are going to get very bad very quick let me make one other important point One of the things that, again, getting back to community-led local development, I talked today with a Baha'i from Switzerland. We're looking for ways how to help local communities without the finance and the support that we're giving to these local communities, without that being, let's say, utilized for things other than what we want the money to be utilized for. Many of the NGOs, they have high overhead cost and the cost of the specialists that are involved, even, I mean, someone like me in the World Bank. I mean, my salary for the World Bank was a typical salary of a United States person, which is about 10 times the salary from someone here in Ukraine. I want to say that there are activities that are going on. One that I really love is called the Mona Foundation. You might have heard of it. It's in Mm -hmm. the United States. Again, it's a Baha'i-inspired. I'm sure there are not activities similar to the Mona Foundation that are not just Baha'i activities, because there's a movement in this direction, I think, today. When we want to help someplace to develop, we find funding for it, because we know funding is going to be important to help out a number of these things. What we don't want to do is to make donations to a certain activity and find that a high percentage of these donations are actually going into the overhead cost for that particular group. The Mona Foundation, I give money to them because they have activities in India, in Africa, in in Central America, in Haiti where I used to live, even one of the schools in Haiti. I was there when they established it. The Mona Foundation, you give money to them, 100% of that money goes to the local community and it is decisions, again, are made by the local community because it's local development, community-led. So there is now, I think, changes in the world where we see that we have to deal with some of these issues And the way we have to deal with them is by local communities. And there are ways we can help those local communities by directly supporting them. And I think that's something that's very important for the future.
0: In our email communications in preparing for this interview, you had mentioned to me Abdul Baha's concept of village storehouse. First, who is Abdul Baha? And secondly, what is the concept behind a village storehouse?
1: Abdu'l-Bahá, of course, is the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith. But even more important to understand is that after, of course, the passing of his father Baha'u'llah, Abdu'l-Bahá became the center of the faith, the center of the covenant, and the leader of the Baha'i community. And he, basically, for many years, guided the affairs and the development of the Baha'i faith. He traveled around the world, he traveled to Europe. The story about Abdu'l-Bahá is absolutely amazing. I mean, I think the first time that he gave a public speech was done in England. I I can't remember exactly where, but he wasn't someone who went and did public speeches, but he did do it. He actually left Israel. He was allowed actually after the Young Turk revolution in Turkey, he was actually allowed to leave the prison where he was not allowed to leave all his life. And he started traveling to places in Europe, in the United States, and meeting with large groups and large auditoriums and speaking to them as if It was something that he had done all his life, but it wasn't, you know. But the fact of the matter is that he was the leader of the Baha'i Faith. He was his father's supporter and helper all his life. And he became such a symbol of the kind of Person that we would like to be, the typical Bahai like myself. We, when I was <laughs> when I was a young youth, I can remember I went to some study classes in the United States, <laughs> and we talked about we should all be like Abdul Baha. And I think I said something stupid like, "Oh yeah, I'm going to be like Abdul Baha." And so all the rest of the people started laughing and saying, oh yeah, sure, you're going to be like Abdu'l-Bahá. Okay, but yeah, we want to be like Abdu'l-Bahá. That's exactly what we want to do. But of course, that is quite a high bar to reach. And that's what people were kind of joking about. When we talk about the village storehouse, basically this is where Abdu'l-Bahá founded a community. In at that point in time, it was, I think, a British protectorate. It was actually in Jordan in the British protectorate. This community was basically a group of individuals, both Baha'is and non-Baha'is, that formed a kind of a collective, a kind of a cooperative. And in this cooperative, they produced food, they developed schools, they developed some even systems for health and everything else. So it was basically an activity whereby Abdu'l-Baha helped them to establish kind of a community, a rural community where they produced food, and they had education, and they had the other activities that are needed in any rural community. And it was successful. It was very successful. In fact, ultimately, that village storehouse, as well as some of the other activities of Abdu'l-Bahal, led to him receiving a knighthood by the British government. It's Actually, he taught Baha'is how to organize themselves into this kind of collective I call it a cooperative. Some Baha'is don't like me call it a cooperative, but I'm a cooperative expert. I've managed cooperatives. And so I say, okay, we won't call it a cooperative, but it is a cooperative as far as I'm concerned. And I can tell you why. And there's plenty of stuff written about it. People have to understand, I think they get the wrong impression because cooperatives have been perverted over the last years. I mean, the farm in which I live in Ukraine is a Cooperative. I mean, it was a cooperative farm, but it wasn't a cooperative farm like the real word for cooperative. It was like a cooperative farm turned upside down. And so that word cooperative sometimes is a little bit difficult in some courses that we teach and some activities where we're discussing them. But essentially, a cooperative is just a business. It's it's like any you know, other business. The only thing this business does not seek profit in the next quarter, or if profit is not there first item of business the first item of business is the members of the cooperative they manage it together and they work for each other they work for the cooperative they work for the community and they help each other in this activity and this of course is what abdul baha showed people how to do in the village storehouse at around the same time abdul baha there was a german by the name of who's well-known in Europe. I don't know how well-known he is in the United States, but Riefhausen was also developed cooperatives throughout Europe at that point in time. These took rural communities, people who nobody paid any attention to, and helped collect them into a unit where they worked together and began to develop their businesses and their communities and that grew and became very progressive in Europe and even worked in the Ukraine until the communists came along and said, we're going to change the cooperative into something different than what you guys are doing. And even today in Europe, there are cooperative banks and there are commercial banks. And the cooperative banks are just basically, again, it's a group of members who are not working for the profit of the bank of the, in the next quarter. They're working for the members of the cooperative bank most of the, let's say, agriculture and small and medium businesses in Europe are really being financed primarily from cooperative banks. The commercial banks are interested in bigger projects. They think big. And, of course, they're thinking of the profit. And there's too much emphasis, I think, today on profit in the world. And, of course, that is driving us to certain difficulties in terms of the economy, in terms of the climate, in terms of equality and everything else.
0: Now, you're on the Wilmette Institute faculty, First, what is the Wilmette Institute, and what courses do you teach there?
1: It's an educational institution. It draws on the principles of the Baha'i faith to inspire social change. You can imagine that that's something that is interesting to me. I want to see social change. I always have wanted to, and for the common good, for everybody. I mean, I think when people in the Wilmette Institute and basically Baha'is around the world, when we think social change, we're not saying, okay, we're going to work for us Baha'is. We're going to make sure we're okay. I don't think any of us want that, quite frankly, and certainly nobody in the Wilman Institute is interested in social change just for the Baha'i communities. There are lots of really well-qualified and well-experienced individuals who are teaching courses at the Wilman Institute, so they're designed to explore individual, collective transformation of the issues in society, empowering the participants to work towards a more just and peaceful society. But that's kind of big words but in many cases you know we can be much more specific like in one of the courses that i teach it's called 11 it's based on a book by a friend and colleague it is really talking about the existential issues that are faced in today's world i'll give one example one would be commercialism you know materialism this is something that did it come about just kind of spontaneously. Or did it come about because of the activities of, let's say, certain people who had business orientations that were not necessarily all that progressive in terms of society? There was, for example, some discussions about, in the early part of the 20th century, there were some famous economists who would talk about the future would be a world in which we would only be working like 15 hours a week. But, of course, now we see that the world has changed to such a degree that it's very difficult for people to survive unless they work 40, 50, or even more hours per week. And a lot of this is based on the commercialism and consumerism that's in our society. I read frequently in the United States that something like 70% of the economy in North America is based on consumer activities and, and purchases. I'm not sure how much of that is really good for the planet. We know that it's not good for the planet. It is contributing to climate change. But at the same time, is it the right way you know, for our families, for our communities, for our children? And these things have to change. And so working with the EBBF, for example, I'll often say we'll be talking about developing the business capabilities, the the, the proper consultation, the proper values in the business, and everything that's good about business. We talk about it. But these days, even though 30 years ago, 25 years ago, this was something that I really was keen about, now I start thinking... We're in a world now that we cannot continue business like it is today and expect to survive well into the end of this particular century, and it's certainly not going to be good for our children. Some kind of major changes are going to be required in order for this to allow us to move forward in a way that's just and peaceful, which is what we want to do in the Wilmot Institute. So we have people that talk about these existential issues. I do a course on agriculture in the Women Institute, and I also do a course on consultation in business. And consultation in business is, again, you can think of it as kind of a, a way where people work together, they listen to each other collectively, and they help each other to come to, let's say, a common agreement which will improve, you know, the business or the activity in which they're involved in. So these qualities are good, but we don't want to go into a situation and say have a person feel that they are the person who knows everything, and everyone should be listening to them. That's not something that we need in the 21st century. We know that none of us can know everything anymore. I mean, maybe maybe 100 years ago we could think that way, but now we know that any particular issue has many different angles, and many of these angles have to be viewed from different perspectives to be able to understand the whole picture. And then when we see them from different angles, we have to figure out how to put those different angles together and come up with a solution that would be the best solution for that particular time. And this is what we call consultation. It's something that was taught by the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah. And it's something that Baha'is use in their communities. But now it's beginning to be something I think I can remember like 50 years ago when we talked about consultation with non-Baha'is, they would think it was something crazy. Uh, But nowadays they don't. The more people understand now that this kind of ability to be able to sit together and decide together and plan together is actually the right answer for many of the issues that we have today.
0: Gary, where do you think this Virtues Project will go in the future?
1: I've worked in India, but I didn't know that in Lucknow, India, there is something that's called a city Montessori School. And I didn't realize, and I might even know the person actually who founded that school, This is a Montessori school, but it's not a school. It is actually 18 different campuses with 50,000 students, uh, participants in the school. It's been active for the last 16 years. And, of course, they use the Virtues uh, Activities and the Virtues Project in the school with their children. And I thought that was really fantastic. This is a Baha'i-inspired school. It's, it's run by Baha'is. But, of course, again, like the work that I'm doing in the Virtues Project in Ukraine, again, they're not pushing religion per se, but they are pushing these values, and they are encouraging a spiritual approach to activity and to enter the world and to life with the children. And, well, my—I understand it started with, like, five students 16 years ago, and now it's got, like, 57,000. This is amazing. And I think to myself— well, I hope we can do something. But I hope we can encourage people to develop this because apparently it is something that does catch on and we'd love to see it catch on.
0: Well, Gary, I want to thank you so much for telling us about your work in the Land of Virtues and the History of the Virtues Project. Thank you so much for taking this hour to explain all that for us. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Gary Rouchet a social and economic development worker now living in Ukraine on a small farm and runs a residential vacation school with his wife called the Land of Virtues for groups of children, youth, and adults striving to build a culture based on universal spiritual principles. He is also a faculty member of the Wilmette Institute. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website www.abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel a Baha'i perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website Baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
2: The maiden of eternity unveiled her face. May her wondrous beauty be exalted indeed. Shedding forth from earth to heaven its resplendent rays. How wondrous a light, how wondrous indeed. A lightning glance she cast As piercing as a shooting star How wondrous her glance How wondrous indeed A glance consuming every name And every title in its flames How wondrous a feat How wondrous indeed How wondrous a feat, how wondrous indeed.